working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta and this is Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm very happy to welcome Peter Erskine to the podcast for the second time. Matthew Krauss interviewed him back in 2016 and when Peter was recently in Atlanta for some clinics and performances at Emory University, he graciously suggested that we do it again, this time with me, and I of course jumped at the chance. I could go on and on in this intro about everything Peter has done in his career and everything he means to the drumming community but I'm guessing you already know. As always, you can find us at workingdrummer.net where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. You can also find links on our homepage to donate to the podcast either on a monthly basis through Patreon or on a one-time basis through PayPal. I want to take a minute and thank a couple of our supporters in particular, Isaac Sanchez out in Southern California who is making monthly donations through our Patreon page, and Brian Hudson here in Atlanta who made a generous one-time donation on PayPal. So huge thanks and gratitude to both those guys. If you'd like to donate to the podcast, just head to workingdrummer.net and you'll see buttons for Patreon and PayPal along the right side of our homepage. There are some great incentives for donating and every donation at every level is greatly appreciated. I also want to let you know that Working Drummer Podcast is now available through Stitcher as well as iTunes. Whichever you use, we hope you'll subscribe and leave us a rating and review and also keep that word of mouth going. Just let somebody know about us digitally or in person. We hit a new high watermark for downloads last month and we want to keep that momentum going. So we really appreciate everyone out there who's supporting us and helping us grow. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45 and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side is going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone. You can also find a link to the new Sublime Birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer. In the near future we've got much more to share in regard to Crush Drums and this dynamic company. For now check out Crush Drums at crushdrum.com
So I really enjoyed this talk with Peter, as you might imagine. Uh, not unlike his drumming, both his ideas and the way he expresses them are sophisticated but still very accessible. And uh, there's a conscientiousness about him, musically and otherwise, that I think we should all aspire to. So let's get right to it with one of the modern masters, the great Peter Erskine. I was speaking with Antonio Sanchez, the mm-hmm. great drummer and composer. Uh, he and his lovely wife came over for lunch, and one of the first things I commented to him was uh, uh, how impressed I was that he's doing a lot of his recording, particularly like the TV score recording for Get Shorty, mm-hmm. uh, in his home studio mm-hmm. and running all the Pro Tools stuff. And, and uh, you know, from background, I mentioned I was uh, fairly sophisticated uh, with music sequencing software from the very early days in the mid 1980s. Mm-hmm. But as audio became a, a bigger and bigger part of programs like Perform and stuff, I, I just fell more and more behind the curve for some reason. Um, and Pro Tools. It just somehow mystifies me. I, I just have a, a couple of, of bumps or hurdles I don't seem to be able to jump over. And, and so he said, oh, well, that's easy. I, I learned it uh, by watching YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, really? I said, well, it, I, you know, I, that makes sense, I guess. I, I figured out how to fix one of my vacuum cleaners by watching <laughs> YouTube. Right. And he said, yes, it's, it's pretty good. Um, of, of course, you know, uh, teaching at USC, um, uh, the availability of so much on YouTube is, is fantastic. Uh, but the, the discussion uh, does turn to, like, the concern or worry that, that a lot of musicians are, are uh, maybe relying more on YouTube for instruction. Mm-hmm. It might be uh, good for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is something I wanted to ask you about because we're we're at a at a time now when I would imagine most of your students are uh, young enough to be you know quote unquote born digital or whatever the phrase is, um, and I mean how does that how does that affect uh, you know the skill set that they come to you with and how does that affect how you teach them? Well, I, I, you know the first thing I should say is that the students are coming into my uh, teaching studio uh, uh, playing at higher levels uh, each successive year Mm -hmm. uh, than I would expect or might even have thought possible. Uh, So something is clearly working Mm -hmm. in terms of music education in general and and drumming education. Uh, And it's, it's great that an interested, uh, drummer or, or, or any musician uh, can find what otherwise would have been long lost performances right. on demand. Um, when I was young, we would, uh, we would be really lucky if we happened to turn on the TV or, or knew about some uh, jazz uh, broadcast. Um, so uh, as uh, it, you know, it's an incredible resource, mm-hmm. um, and 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 we'll 
will turn to it during lessons. And, and I subscribe to Spotify just for that uh, instant access to any number of recorded performances that either I want to refer to or the students will hear. Have you heard this? Right. Well, no, I haven't. Right. Um, so that's all pretty great. I, my only regret for uh, this generation or maybe one or two prior um, is that students will never have that opportunity to sit in front of Art Blakey's drum set and mm-hmm. hear him play. Right. Um, uh, so drummers of my generation or maybe the, the next one, we were still lucky enough to to get to witness and experience what that was. Right. Um, uh, so... You know, it's not that there aren't other great drummers who who have come along, but you know, these were the people who created the language and the vocabulary of the instrument. Yeah, and I think maybe uh, you know the digital age has has uh, caused people to not value live interaction as much, not just in music, but in in you know our culture in general. And like you said, there there are plenty of uh, great drummers to go see. You know, you can certainly on any given night go see Antonio Sanchez or Ari Honig or Peter Erskine or you know anybody who's playing. But uh, you know, you, when you were young, if if you knew that Art Blakey was playing, you were like, I have to go see Art Blakey. And now, you know, a young a young drummer might get the opportunity to go see somebody and be like, "Well, I, I I've seen him on YouTube. I've heard him play." You know, <laughs> your your use of the word uh, interacted. Well, here's one of my visual props. That <laughs> listeners can't see this, but what you know, what am I doing? <laughs> In the phone. I'm interacting with you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was a. Uh, on the airplane yesterday, flying home from Chicago, and just everybody's just got their their neck down, looking mm-hmm. into their phone. Yeah, um, it, it, it was interesting. Uh, there was a woman seated next to me, and um, she just couldn't stop fidgeting. It was the phone. It was the iPad. It was back to the phone. Back to the iPad. Then she took out her computer. Mm. Um, and I was really glad I had a book. <laughs> An actual book with pages. An actual book <laughs> with, with, with paper. Right, you right. know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Kindle, and, and, and I like having it in my, in my knapsack. But uh, the best reading still seems to be when I'm holding a book. Right, right. Um, so you, you mentioned that like the level of playing that, that students are coming in with, uh, is, is higher than ever, um, due in no small part to YouTube and social media and all these resources they have. Um, what's, what's the flip side of it? Is there, is there, uh, are there some bad habits or tendencies that are a result of this digital age that, that you kind of have to undo or, um, disabuse them of? Um, uh, to be honest, uh, no, nothing's like uh, screaming like mm-hmm. for me to like uh, reveal like yes, here's the here's the major problem with mm-hmm. this. And, uh, so uh, the, the 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 difference maybe Zach is is that um, when we were young uh, and we encountered a recording. It was usually uh, 
uh, you know, 20 some to 30 some minutes in length total. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's kind of amazing to look at albums and see uh, how much music was on them. You know, oftentimes uh, less than 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you would spend a lot of time with that one recording. You, you came home from the record store. Wow, I got this got this album. And because of the size of the packaging, you could really get totally drawn into the, the photographs and 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 just imagining what it was like in in that room or concert hall, wherever they they played that music and mm-hmm. recorded. Um, and you you learned every note. Right. By heart. I mean, you, you knew that album inside out and 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 you could focus on one instrument, but you you'd of course start paying attention to what the other instruments had done and figuring out if one musician made this choice, how the other musicians responded and so forth. So, um, uh, you know, that's a different sort of uh, relationship and level of intimacy than having 10,000 or more songs. Right. In a pocket device. Right, right. And so, uh, in theory, you know, you say, well, you, you could be concerned about that, that let's say, that, that level of intimacy. Um, but the flip side, to use that term, is, is that my students are just incredibly aware of, of, of any number of things. So I'm not really seeing too much of a downside uh, mm-hmm. to to the wide availability as a as a uh, small record label entrepreneur. Um, it 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 hasn't made uh, the recording and and selling of, of of albums any easier. Right. Um. Uh, the, the new album that that we're coming out with next month uh, in early April is the third Dr. Um album. It's called On Call. Mm-hmm. It's a double album. Uh, one disc was recorded in the studio, and then the other disc was recorded live while we were touring in Italy. Um, and, you know, we all say this about every album, but I think this might actually be maybe the best playing I've got gotten captured on disc wow and uh, it's 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 a really good album it might be the last one that we put out it's the 25th one in our catalog mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, you know they, they say never say never right but um availability of, of, of a cd versus you know someone can just stream it if, mm-hmm. if they subscribe to apple music or spotify uh and and so the the return on on you know this revenue return uh, versus the amount of money it costs to to record or to manufacture to promote a CD, um, it's 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 just less and less uh, tenable right. to 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 make these things mm-hmm. and um, and. And I'm not sure what the solution is. I, you know, I, uh, people who listen to recordings want recordings. Yeah. I know as a as a freelance musician, there's uh, I'm spending way way less time in studios making albums. Mm-hmm. And and anyone that makes an album, for the most part, is is paying for it out of their own pocket. Right. You know, right. It's just, 
they just have the the, the urge or the need uh, for their music to be recorded. So you mentioned that you're spending less time in the studio making records. Um, does that does that translate to more time out in the world playing gigs? No. <laughs> <laughs> and is that is that by by choice on your part? Half and half. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to spend more time at home. Mm-hmm. Um, my teaching responsibilities at the University of Southern California. I'm teaching at the Thornton School of Music there. Uh, that keeps me home for a good good chunk of the year, mm-hmm. uh, and then come early summer, you know, uh, I, I usually find myself flying to either Asia or, or to Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be flying to Europe uh, uh, beginning of May uh, to do some touring with the Doctor M Band in Italy. I'm uh, then. Uh, doing a, a kind of a career retrospective with the uh, WDR big band that's based in Cologne, Germany. Hmm. Um, I'll send you a link if you want to p- uh, put it up of a concert I did there last month with yeah. Alan Haskell. Please. Um, and uh, they're just a great big band. I think it's my favorite big band in the world. Really? WDR, uh, by the way, stands for Westdeutsche Rundfunk. Rundfunk is German for radio. Uh huh station right right west deutsche was uh you know when when there were two germans yeah 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 so a career uh, a career so, retrospective yeah because I've, I've played with them for uh wow uh, close to 30 years mm-hmm. i've had an association yeah with that with that band um and then what am I doing? Oh, then uh, touring with uh, the great pianist Kenny Werner, mm-hmm. along with saxophonist Benjamin Koppel and the bassist Johannes Weidenbuller. It's a project they, they're calling like, the Art of the Quartet. <laughs> nice. Very cool. That's yeah. So uh, it's, it's uh, I, I couldn't tell you the exact numbers, but you know, I'm, I'm playing live, I'm doing some album recording, uh, doing some film and television recording, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of teaching, um, and somehow it just seems like I'm, I'm really busy. So I'm, I'm not, uh, wanting or complaining for work. I feel very grateful. I do. Um, but the, the, the travel is, not nearly as much fun as it used to be. Right. It's just a grind. Yeah. Yeah, very much. Uh, and I mean, you mentioned the lady on the plane who wouldn't stop fidgeting. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of becoming more and more aware of how air travel and, and travel in general just does not bring out the best in people. Um, so, and you know, any, any anecdote about how somebody acted on a plane or in an airport or, or whatever, I, I try to just take it with a grain of salt and, and just you know, it it really just brings out the worst in people because they're stressed out, they're crowded, they're it's you know. I think our our culture is more anxiety ridden than ever, um, and yes, it uh, you know it you know it doesn't bring the best out in in me either. <laughs> um, well, I haven't I haven't seen you uh, on an airplane yet. So. Well, yeah, it's I mean I I try just to kind of sit still and. 
and be be cool and and go with things but you know i'm six foot five so oh it, it it's it's tough <laughs> yeah the uh uh the unexpected uh seat flying back in your face i i had a great experience once um, <laughs> i had booked a, a an aisle seat um it was either virgin or JetBlue. i think it was virgin and uh I'm in my seat, and all of a sudden, the chair in front of me comes flying back really fast. And, and we're we're still boarding the plane, you know. People are boarding, uh-huh. and I guess the fellow was just testing it. But I thought, wow, there's there's no way I could fly cross country with the threat of that chair <laughs> back, uh, with no warning. Right. Um, just then, uh, a woman came uh, to sit in the middle seat beside me and I noticed she was with uh, uh, a gentleman who got in the middle seat in the row behind mm-hmm. and as I'm standing up to uh, allow her access to this seat uh, I I turned to the to the man I said excuse me are you traveling together and he said yes and I said would you like to have my seat so you can sit next to her the guy said you're willing to trade your aisle seat for my middle seat so we can sit together? I said, yeah, why not? (laughs) And the woman turned. She goes, that's very kind of you. And I kind of got very close to her. I said, thank you. I said, it's on one condition, though. (laughs) And she said, what? I said, you promise not to put your chair back at all during the flight. Are you okay with that? She goes, yeah, fine. I said, good, we got a deal. (laughs) So... Now, the gentleman takes my seat. I get into the middle seat. On either side of me are pretty large guys. Right. So I just looked at both of them, and I said, I kind of smiled. I said, okay, gentlemen, let the elbow wars begin. (laughs) I just figured, let's just address it right away. Right, right. One guy says uh, on the window side, he goes, hey, man. That's so cool what you did. You can have my armrest. I'm going to sleep. And the other guy goes, you can have my armrest too. <laughs> so all of a sudden, now it's better than first class. I mean, I've, I've, I've got this wonderful space. Right. I'm the local hero. Right, right. Um, and yeah, it was cool. Yeah, I I feel like that's kind of what's missing. I mean, we talked about like actual interaction, you know, between people and whether it's on a plane or, you know, at at a sound check or, you know, any interaction you can have. If you can kind of disarm everyone uh with just a little courtesy and a little humor, um it really it really goes a long way. It's that's a very good point and I'll just add one thing to that. A, a bit of wisdom that my father told me years ago he was a psychiatrist so mm-hmm. he had some keen understanding but he said he said you always need to give something to someone before you try to take something away mm. yeah so uh <laughs> it was pretty transparent but uh there was once a guy across the aisle and i he had introduced himself to the flight crew uh and he, he was uh making quite a bit of noise uh, to the extent that uh, not only uh, typing very loudly, but he started doing dictation. <laughs> and uh, I'm, it, I'm, I'm in desperate need of, of getting some sleep because when I get to Japan, 
it's going to be right off the plane, straight to the club. Right. Because uh, our flight had gotten canceled the day before. Uh, anyway, so uh, uh, as the stewardess is serving my lunch, I said, uh, wow, you know, what's going on with the with the guy doing the the uh, dictation and and uh she said yeah i know i said well do you say something or do i she said would you mind <laughs> i said yeah it's fine so i catch his eye i said excuse me i said john right your name's john he goes yeah and i said john you seem like a nice guy <laughs> <laughs> he goes next i said but you know this 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 talking you're doing into your little recording device is, 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 is bothersome. And I'm wondering if, if you might not agree that it'd be more appropriate if you wait till you get to your hotel right. to do that. He sets it down. He, he gets up out of his chair. And I'm thinking, well, this could turn interesting really quick. Right. <laughs> he, he extends his hand. He says, hey, man, I want to thank you just for being polite and, and being upfront about it. Hmm. I didn't realize it was so bothersome. And if, if it's okay with you, if I could just do one more report, then I'll put it away. Yep. And we became, uh, we became kind of airplane buddies. Right. We had a, had a very enjoyable rest of the flight together. And, right. Um, yeah. I mean, some people, there's a wonderful expression in Japanese and I can't say it in Japanese, but, <laughs> but it translates to, uh, someone's ability to either uh, see the air or read the air in the room, mm-hmm. um, and in Japanese society, it's 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 much more common for someone to be able to read the air. Um, in other words, to get a sense of what's appropriate, what's not, in terms of its impact on other people. Right. Um, uh, otherwise known as, as just having common courtesy. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, or, uh, yeah, common sense or good manners. Yeah, right. Not something stupid that could prove offensive to someone. Um, and a lot of that, uh, some people, I, I, I think, have a pretty natural intuition for that. Others learn. Uh, certainly when you get older, unless you get really grouchy, you tend to... to to calm down about about something Mm -hmm. so it's just known as acquiring a philosophy yes yes (laughs) which extends to the way you make music just in terms of you know giving giving something before you expect to get being accommodating before you expect to be accommodated um it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, just, you know, kind of observing some of the other musicians that I play with, uh, for better or for worse, uh, you know, this, this, this concept in action. Um, do you, do you feel that's a, I mean, when, when is the appropriate time to start teaching students about this concept, you know, going, going beyond the, uh, the quarters and eighths and the rights and the lefts of the drums and talking about how to be a human in the music business? Um, well, I, the last few words of your sentence skewed it, skewed the question a little bit, um, <laughs> uh, but I think uh, any time's a good time, and and every lesson I teach, it always returns to the 
addressing the the issue of of being musical Mm -hmm. and and being musical is being mindful it's being present it's being in the moment it's being human um i i tell my students at the beginning of, of of their course of study with me i said we could make this very simple and very short if you want um and all i need tell you is that just play what you want to hear mm-hmm. how do you want it to sound um and so a lot of it is is of course learning about technique learning about musical form learning uh the vocabulary and history of the music but ultimately learning to number one trust yourself as a musical voice and learning to trust the other musicians mm-hmm. ultimately i think learning to trust the music right because once you do that then you certainly don't feel the need to uh, try to impress somebody because that's an extra musical concern that has nothing to do with anything um, trying to second guess what someone might like that's an extra musical concern right you know, who cares right. you can't you can't again second guess you know if I see Steve Gadd walk into the club I have a pretty good idea of, of what Steve likes or doesn't like but I depending where the where I am and in, in, in the arc of whatever music we're playing that that's not what I should be worrying about or thinking about. Mm-hmm. I need to be paying attention to the music. And if he likes it, great. And if he doesn't, well, fine. Right. And if he's got some advice, like, Hey, next time you play that, maybe try doing this. If it's Steve, I'll certainly, you know, listen to it. But, you know, Steve can read the air very well. And he right. would <laughs> presume to say something like that. Right. Right. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, it's an example I used to give to, to students. Uh, you're playing, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, Steve Gadd, Steve Smith, and Finney Caliuta, and Dennis Chambers, uh, whoever. Right, right. A bunch of drummers come in, and your, your first thought is, gosh, I wish they'd been here for the first set. <laughs> <laughs> And it's it's you know it's natural to be self conscious. I think I think I can sum it up this way, and I don't know if I mentioned this down in Atlanta, but someone had asked me how my drumming had changed over the years, mm-hmm. and uh, my my reply surprised me because uh, uh, I hadn't formulated the thought before I said it. But um, I said, well, when I was younger, I used to play uh, as if my life depended on it. Mm-hmm. I said, and now I play as if someone else's life depends on it. Mm, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really good for the, the redundant uh, <laughs> <laughs> rehashing. But it's a good, it's a good sentiment because uh, it, I think that little, little shift in perspective or priority is not a bad one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and musical generosity is, is a a concept that's, you know, kind of, kind of abstract and it's, it's not something that you can kind of sit a student down and say, here's how you are, you know, here's how you can be musically generous. It's, it's like you said, learning to read the air, uh, learning to trust the music. Um, 
It, it, it's also a, 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 a clever tactic because, you know, number one as drummers, you know, we, we have to exude the ownership of what we're doing, just like the talk about flying, you know, the, the pilot of the airplane. Right. Right. It, it does no one any good if we're all, you know, if, uh, wait, this is forward and that's uh, wait, this, wait, this puts it up. Wait. So, um, you know, uh, drummers who are valued in an ensemble project that confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, when, when people might remark, oh, you're incredibly generous, you're, you're very self-effacing when you play, um, I can smile and take the compliment, but I know that deep down, because like any other drummer, I'm, I'm a control freak. <laughs> By doing that, the way I play, I'm the puppet master. Hmm. I'm pulling the strings of the ensemble. I'm very much in control. Mm-hmm. And so even though I'm not, it's not maybe an obvious extrovert uh, amount of drumming, um, I'm able to direct the music uh, with, with far more uh, uh, effectiveness and accuracy than if I try to strong arm it. Right, right. You know, so, so it's just a, it's, a, it's a more clever, I think, uh, way of, of, of making it front and center, even though no one really is aware that that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's not, in other words, all I'm saying, it's not selfless. Um, right. I'm, I'm, I'm very much interested in, in getting my way musically, mm-hmm. but I, I won't, I won't throw a tantrum if I don't, unless basic musical principles are being violated. Right. And then right. I'm, I'm not at all shy to, uh, to express, um, my displeasure. Right. But even then you, I mean, you can, you can express that displeasure in a constructive way and a, you know, something that doesn't come off as adversarial, like the guy on the airplane, he was violating a basic kind of <laughs> manners principle of like talking into his, his, uh, recording oh. device. Um, Oh yeah. I mean, certainly yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't go to war with your fellow musicians right. and just start pointing fingers and being accusatory. Um, Sometimes when I give a direction, uh, I'm in the, the enviable position. I'm the guest artist. I'm the older guy. Uh, people will will tend to listen or, or honor right. what I say. Right. Um, uh, the only thing uh, I I I I don't like, I think, if I'm working with a new group of musicians, is is inattention. Mm-hmm. Um. If we're there, and you know, we have to pay attention. And 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 even you know, if it's a student ensemble, uh, I don't expect that every student in an ensemble, is, uh, their goal is to you know uh, become the best studio player in this city or that city or or whatever. But you know, if we're, if we're playing a game of basketball. Uh, I want to know that if I want to throw the ball to him or to her, that they're not checking the text on their phone, but right. they're involved with the game. Cause then it's, it's more fun for everybody. Right. Right. So just, just being in the moment. It's interesting. You mentioned basketball because I've, 
I've played some. I don't anymore because I rolled my ankle a year and a half ago and just, you know, luckily it was not a serious injury and didn't prevent me from drumming or anything, but it was definitely like the the red flag. It was the universe saying, "This this is a young man's game and you're 37 now and this could so anyway. Uh but I I noticed a phenomenon both in basketball and in music. You know, the it's been said a million times before, but the better the players are around you, the better you play. And the uh you know if if people aren't paying attention if people are in their own world if they're not aware if they're not attentive um you know shit doesn't work the way it's supposed to and and yeah. when shit yeah. isn't working the way it's supposed to it's hard to play your best or to feel like you're playing your best when you're you, you know you're playing to survive mm-hmm. um yeah that uh uh yeah if you can't depend on one of your fellow musicians i mean for a drummer that that would the first place the finger would point would be to the bass player mm-hmm. and you're counting on the bass player to be somewhat consistent in that providing that foundation and you 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 go to play a counter rhythm to create a nice little bit of tension or shape and then they they're not there. Right, they, right. Or they feel like that's a signal, oh, let's open it up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if that happens, uh, I will take the opportunity to have that discussion mm-hmm. with him or her and to say, uh, if you hear me uh, do a variation, that's not an invitation for you to do it too. Right. I'm doing that variation because you're you're holding it together. One of us needs to play, you know, the to, to be the grown-up in the room. So. <laughs> so, and it's I, usually uh, not the drummer. <laughs> well, but I, I, I was doing a, a, a master class for rhythm sections uh, two days ago up in Naperville, Illinois. A gentleman named Pete Elman uh, has started a, a, a high school and, and, and middle school jazz festival. It's outside of Chicago. Um, and I was recounting an experience I had with a bass player who I'd never played with, uh, uh, a bass player named, a uh, wonderful bassist named David Wong, who mm-hmm. plays in the, the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra, mm-hmm. among many other groups in New York. And he was a quiet guy, and I couldn't get a read on, you know, like the vibe. And, I don't know. Uh, we were uh, grouped together to play in this this combo at, at the Stanford jazz festival. So I'm fine. You know, we start playing and instantly I'm like, Oh my God, I love this guy. This, this is incredible. <laughs> and, and I looked at him and he was staring right at my ride symbol. Mm. He's watching the stick and we finish. And I said, okay, who are you? Who did you play? With? Right. He said, well, I, I work, I work for, Quite a few years with Roy, Roy Haynes. I said, "That's where you learned to watch the symbol." Mm-hmm. And he smiled. He said, "Yeah." I said, "Wow, bless your heart." Yeah, and because you know, Buddy Rich had all his bass players do that. They mm-hmm. watched the ride symbol, and the and the bass players will just watch the drummer's ride symbol. It's it's a piece of cake. Yeah, yeah. This this dovetails with uh, something I wanted to ask you about because you you talked about you know this relationship between the drummer and the bassist in uh, in your clinic in Atlanta. 
Um, and just yesterday and today, I've been having a, a conversation on Facebook with a, a friend of mine in Kansas City, wonderful bassist named Ben Leifer. Um, mm-hmm. And just kind of like we're just kind of talking around this relationship between the bassist and the drummer and what their roles are and to what extent those roles interlock and to what extent um, their lanes overlap. Um, how you, you mentioned uh, the, the, the bassist watching your ride cymbal stick, um, but have you have you been in situations where it worked the other way around where you were focused on the bassist right hand to gain some insight into his feel his touch etc uh, i mean the, the first experience i really had with that was um i was imaging the 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 flesh on the finger of the bass player mm-hmm. it was eddie gomez so I, I I didn't have visual uh, contact because he was in an ISO booth, but we were playing a, a, a very slow blues, and so I just imaged on his finger on the string, and somehow that image or visualization helped me to really focus somehow on on the spatial time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a form of that focus. I, I mean, the closest I came, it was, it was uh, with Steely Dan watching Donald Fagan's left hand on the keyboard. Mm. So it's, it's similar to like you know, if a drummer was playing in Ray Charles' band, you know, you, you always had to watch his foot, right? Um, and with Donald, I would watch his his left hand, uh, and then my bass drum would be right when he played the bass notes. Mm-hmm. part of any any rhythm or vamp and and then he was happy and and the very first rehearsal that's what i did hmm. and, and i gained his trust because of that yeah uh, no i but i can't say i've 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 like tried to really look at a bass player's fingers mm-hmm. it's a it's Excuse a one-way street zach <laughs> <laughs> good Good. That's the way it should be. No, um, with me. Right. With me. Right. right. <laughs> um, I, I had an experience when I was in uh, in Kansas City. Um, I I think for for my first couple years there, the the basis that I played with most often were Ben Leifer and another guy named Jeff Harshbarger, who uh, who both have you know a very present tone. They pull pretty hard on the string. Um, so, you know, I got used to that, and, and the first time I played a gig with uh, another bassist named Gerald Spates, um, I, wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. I couldn't figure out what the problem was, if it was me or him or whatever. And I looked at his right hand, and I noticed that his touch was just so much lighter on the strings than the bassist I was used to. And as soon as I kind of realized that, I, I actually changed the way... I was hitting the symbol. I made my touch on the symbol lighter um, and just tried to mimic like the feel and the, the color of his right hand with my right hand. Did, did that work? It did. It, it worked beautifully. And I don't know if that, you know, would work in, in every situation, but it just made me aware of like the, the differences from bassist to bassist and how they actually play the instrument. Um, the the light touch thing is an interesting point because 
that can be tough. I, uh, uh, you know, it, and, and bass players, uh, you know, like they play gut strings and they really like to pull. Right. Uh, more often than not, that uh, that's uh, indicative of, 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 of kind of a, a particular stylistic way of playing mm-hmm. to, in terms of their approach to a rhythm section. Right. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they, uh, in other words, they uh, it's kind of, it's just a more straight ahead, more swing yeah. style, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'm trying to think how Mark Johnson, I mean, Mark was a fairly light player, but, but he had a robust pull. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, bass players who have a very light action—it's um, just harder. You're right to to feel that thing, and I think I do prefer um, a, a bassist who who has enough physicality or a physical interaction. Right. Um, and, and I play, you know, I play very very lightly, and yet there's a there's a definite physical specificness. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So every stroke is, is, is an action that's initiated. And it, uh, as, as opposed to like, I'm just letting the sticks kind of bounce. Right. Right. If, if, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Um, yeah. This is just something that's, that's been on my mind in, in the last couple of days, just how, uh, you know, how bassists and drummers interact and, and, and who is in charge, uh, and, and how, who is in charge can change from, from, uh, gig to gig. I, you know, I love what's, what's happening now on, on electric bass. Uh, this, this, this bassist works in the Dr. Rump band, Benjamin Shepard, mm-hmm. 26 or 27. Now, yeah. Yeah. From, from New Zealand. And, uh, I was, Re-listening to some of the music on this latest album, and I'm I just I'm just kind of dazzled by the way he's playing because it's unlike the way bass players used to play, and yet and so there's there's a lot of motion, and yet it's not it doesn't bother me. It doesn't get in the way of things. It's he's very aware and very clever of of which notes are attacked, the shape of the notes. Um, some of them connect. He has this really cool legato thing going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, he's just, he's very aware. Uh, and, and I like it. And, and, and I'm, I'm noticing some other bass players are doing it. So I, you, you, you know, in general, I, I think the shape of music is, it's good. <laughs> good. I, I think it's good. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, the question of when, when drummers are playing, very busy or you know souls whatever everybody does that Mm -hmm. Uh, you know i i i I couldn't count the number of long or or boring or stupid souls i've played (laughs) in my life um and 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 now i think i'm i'm i've I've actually figured out how to play like interesting Mm -hmm. stuff yeah yeah uh and 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 a big part of that was just me giving myself permission to to play what I wanted to hear to 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 
to be uh, to allow my being drawn to melody to uh, play out mm-hmm. and and not like uh, feel like I, I need to do something fast. I mean, the the problem with 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 fast and with dense is that depending on the room you're doing it in, it usually just sounds not good. Right. It just doesn't. You listen out front; it's just a blob. Mm-hmm. It's a blur of notes, and um, or it could be recorded really great. And, and a lot of these drummers do have excellent execution. Uh, uh, but there's only so much. I think that any brain, even the younger brains of today, there's only so much information you can take in. Right. So, so when drummers don't breathe, you know, horn players at least have to breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, what, why why do why do people not like Kenny G? I mean, a lot of people do, but why do musicians not like Kenny G? Now, Kenny G is a very nice man, mm-hmm. um, and I think he technically is uh, you know he's very good at, at, at playing the saxophone. Stylistically, it's not my thing, but but the the one element that bothers me, aside from general aesthetics, uh, is that he. With this circular breathing thing, he never takes a breath. Right, right. And if a keyboard player plays his or her instrument the same way, without breathing, uh, or if a drummer does, you know, we have to remember to take a breath. Yeah, yeah. Take a breath. And you can listen to any number of, of keyboard players, but one of the... I mean, Herbie, I was talking the other day with Vince Mendoza, and I, I said, of all the great musicians I've been lucky enough to, to meet and get to play with, I, if I had to, you know, highlight one of them as being the greatest musician, I said, I, I think it would have to be Herbie Hancock. Hmm. It's the, his rhythmic, his innate rhythmic genius is... Yeah. It's just unlike anything I've experienced with anyone else. And, and I've only gotten to play with him a few times. Uh, but, boy, he does he understand space and breathing. Right. And he, he strikes me as, you know, going back to the concept of being musically generous, he strikes me as someone who is able to be musically generous without playing down without dumbing down his playing and as you were as you were saying you know what 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 you were saying about your soloing and how you figured out to how to play more interesting stuff and to give yourself permission to play the things you want to hear i think that that um what you're talking about is being a more authentic version of of your musical identity and if you play with authenticity, I think that translates to, to generosity and, and allows the musicians you play with to also be authentic. Mm. Truthfulness, in other words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not fronting. Fronting? <laughs> yeah. What's that? Just, you know, putting up a wall of, of what, you know, like you were saying, what you think people want to hear or something that oh. you think will be impressive or... Um, you know, misrepresenting yourself in that way. Mm. Fronting. Huh? Well, is that some Gen X? <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't know, Peter. I'm younger than, than Gen X. I, Does that I, make you a millennial? Are you a millennial? No, I, I think uh, both my wife and I, we're, we're 37. Uh, she's 38. And I think, uh, we're, I think we're what they call zennials. 
X oh, any <laughs> so like we're between Gen X and millennials. Oh, I don't know. We're we're this inter- there have been articles written about our generation because we're the only generation that kind of grew up without you know the technical the you know the digital revolution and kind of came into it as we came into adulthood. So we had this analog childhood and and a digital coming of age sort of um so we're we're switch hitters in that way I suppose. But uh <laughs> Zenial. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I guess. Is that, is that with an X or a Z? I, I want I, it's X. Yeah, X millennials. Wow. Yeah, because we're between X and millennials. Wow. You know what? This is going to come in really handy. I have a feeling that when I'm doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. Yes, I would imagine so. <laughs> I would imagine so. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. All right, so what's your what's your favorite iPad app? Uh, you know, I I am late to the iPad party. I just got one like two months ago, um, uh, so I'm I'm still you know finding my way around it. I downloaded the the Fourscore app immediately uh, just to get charts going, and and you know I'm I'm already loving that. But uh, I'm I'm at the Are very, using a page turner. Uh, the little foot thing. Yeah. No, not yet. There's a page turner. Um, I think is it called like the butterfly. Or, I, I uh, it's ringing a bell. I know what you're talking about. I've yeah. seen people use it. Yeah, I because our feet are, are busy, but I'll 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 activate it with my left hand. Hmm. And um, whenever I do the concerto for drum set and orchestra, uh, I'm using a, a the large 12 inch iPad. Yeah on the stand and people barely even notice it. It's down in front of the drums mm-hmm. and because of the size of the iPad uh, and uh, the way the PDFs were I, I prepared that uh, I can, I can pretty easily see what I need to see uh, to play the piece. I just haven't committed it to memory because there's just too many uh, shifting bar things. And it's sort of like a big band chart. I kind of want right. to know where I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fourscore is great, and this is, it's it's really nice having this just with my hand. I can I can advance the pages. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, let me see. But I asked so was I, I asked you so I could tell you what mine was. I right. I like the New York Times cross. <laughs> <laughs> I should I should start doing that because I like playing words with friends. I like the Scrabble thing, but I should I should do the crossword thing too. It's fun. Yeah. And and, and they're they're great. Uh, of course, to get our brains work, my wife and I, uh, every morning we, we do Sudoku. Mm-hmm. Of course. And, uh, 
we go to dailysudoku.com and we download and print out um, each day's Sudoku. And, and then depending on the, the, uh, the level of difficulty, we'll give ourselves little rules. Like uh, <laughs> if it's really hard, we can write in little number reminders. If, mm-hmm. it's, if it's medium, then no, we just do it. And uh, we don't set time limits, but it's a lot of fun. Is there is there a, is, there a, is there a competition? Is there a winner? Does somebody have to take somebody out to dinner? No, no, no. We 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 we, we keep scores. She's generally always ahead. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's the smart one in the family. Right. Oh, you too. <laughs> Your wife too, huh? <laughs> well, we're we're smart enough that we married. Uh, People smarter than us. Right, right. It, it reminds me of when uh, when George W. Bush was first first elected, and and Dennis Miller was talking about him, and Dennis Miller said, "You know, he's he's smart enough to know that he's not very smart. So he's surrounding himself with smart people, much the same way a hole surrounds itself with a donut." <laughs> 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 That's good. That's the first time I've laughed at a, at a, at a, at a line by Dennis Miller. Yeah, they're few and far between, but uh, but that was <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, so a, a couple of the other things that you you mentioned in your clinic um, really really kind of caught my my interest. Um, you mentioned um, when you first started playing the Tama drums, your wife commented to you, "I like how these drums make you play." Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that got me to thinking about how, you know, to what extent our playing is affected by the instruments we're playing and, and to what extent it should be affected. Um, because, you know, when you're playing backline kits and when you don't have as much consistency as you'd like from gig to gig, uh, you know, my tendency at least is to want to find things that are consistent, like things that I should be able to do on any kit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the flip yeah. side of that is allow it to color your playing allow it to um you know to be in the moment in that way be in the moment on the gear yeah it's fun uh i, I remember years ago i sat in, in this club in chicago i think it was judy roberts gig and the drummer's name i think was phil Greto, something like that mm-hmm. um and uh i'd never seen a drum heel every drum the snare the toms all the time they were all flat and all the same height hmm. and it was fun it was just <laughs> very interesting i said well this is kind of fun uh-huh. and um something similar i uh i, I played with the uh, steps ahead we had a reunion gig up in san francisco and it's a long story that our car got the rear window got smashed uh, uh, left the drums just for a few minutes yes. in the hotel parking lot in front of the doorman and all of a sudden, I get a phone call. Your car's been broken into. Uh, so anyway, the, the 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 next day, we're trying to get the the, the rear window replaced, and um, and so uh, Ileana Elias was was playing piano, and her drummer Rafael Beretta was was traveling along because they interrupted their trio tour for these two days. Um, so uh, he said, "Hey, I'll." Uh, you know they they've got good house drums. It's a kumba, uh, it's a craviato kit. There, he said, I'll I'll, I'll set them up for you. Mm-hmm. Said, Great, thank you. Yeah. So I get down there just in time for you know a three minute sound check. Mm-hmm. They open they open the club. 
the drums were were uh, he used to set them up much higher than I normally would play. Um, but I was just so grateful that you know it was, it was a good drum set, and, right? And and the 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 hell of the day dealing with this car and the insurance company and everything else. Uh, it was such a cookie <laughs> just to get to make music again, right? And and I loved how different it felt. And I was like, wow, this is well, this is fun. Mm-hmm. You know, so I just you know I let it inform me and, and have fun. And 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 of course we're taught to you, we, you know uh, you should be able to make any instrument sound good, uh, etc. That said, you and I both know that when when we get to play a really good sounding drum or a drum that makes us sound good. Mm-hmm. And let's face it, there are differences. Yeah. Um, it's pretty irresistible. Yeah. yeah. You know, and uh, uh, Tama Drums were the, that was the last drum company I ever expected to have anything to do with. I remember at the, at the, at the big music trade shows, I'd see the Tama booth. I was at Beeline right past it because <laughs> that was a rock and roll drum set. Right. You know, right. Great for the hard rock guys or the metal players and, uh, even though Elvin, Lenny White, and Billy Cobb had played them back in the day. Uh, but a gentleman named Terry Bissett, who's now working with Ludwig Drums, he said, uh, I'd, I'd love for you just to try this kit. And it blew my mind. Mm-hmm. And, and it, you know, drum shells do matter. Bearing edges do matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you get the right combination of drum heads on it, and, and and I play I generally play the star drums, but I've I've started using star classics, mm-hmm. which are made in China, like some of them, and they're just so easy to tune up and play on. Hmm. It, uh, I was spending a lot of time with 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 with, with some other drums, like trying to get the drums to sound like this or that, and I just haven't had a frustrating moment yet. Yeah, yeah, with Tom and. And, and, and of course, the, the deal was. I'm sorry, to interrupt. No, no, no. The, the 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 deal was predicated on on their their promising their willingness and their promise to make a cymbal stand. It was like the old Ludwig, right? The flat bass. Yeah. yeah. So it's the classic stand, and and I love it. Yeah. It's, I'm I'm totally happy. I've never been happier uh, playing a drum set. And when your wife talked about how those drums make you play, I, I wish I, I wish I had her so I could ask her. Uh, but uh, what what do you feel was the difference uh, in in what those drums brought out of you as a player? Um, she heard me playing with uh, uh, as if I had more liberty, more freedom. Mm. Um, uh, I was taking more chances. You take more chances when when you feel like your safety net is either really good right or or you feel free enough that you don't even care about the safety net right right it's the joy of flying yeah <laughs> to borrow tony williams uh album name mm-hmm. 79 <laughs> uh it, yeah it's it's just that so you you feel free mm-hmm. yeah you that's know? interesting and, and it was and it was a freedom you because know, to feel free when you're playing means you you lose inhibition, and if you can, if an instrument can do that, then you don't have to rely on trying to alter your consciousness or anything. Right. Uh, 
like, wow, the music's doing this. And, and, you know, the basic rule of any instrument is that just like if a pianist sits down at a really great piano, they're going to play better. Right. It, it should inspire you to play better. Mm-hmm. And if an instrument makes you work harder to get your sound, find another instrument. Right, right. There's, I mean, there's a parallel between, uh, you know, what you just said and, and playing with musicians who might be making life difficult. You know, we, we mentioned earlier how if everybody is attentive, if everybody's uh, present, then everything works better and there there's that safety net, there's that trust. Um and you don't have mm-hmm. to you don't have to manhandle the music to try and make it sound mm-hmm. good or to try to feel like you're sounding good. Um, right. And this, it, I'm, I'm realizing the same is absolutely true when you have an instrument you trust, when you have an instrument you love, you're you're able to take more chances because whatever you play on that instrument is going to sound better just by virtue of the fact that, that it's it's that instrument. Yeah, exactly, and and. Uh, Otherwise, you're you're kind of like playing by the seat of your pants, right? Right. You know? And and it can you know you get on the stage and the sound is all weird or this is weird or that's weird. Then you just well, okay, well, um, do the best you can. Right. This is another thing I've been thinking about in in recent years. Just how to you know, I, I how to lower my threshold for comfort on stage. You know how to make 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 the thing make the number of things that need to be absolutely perfect lower for me to be happy on a gig and feel like I'm doing well. You know, well, yeah, it's 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 known as just shut up and play. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, I've just I've I've noticed uh, you know some musicians I've played with over the years just. Any any little thing can kind of ruin the experience of playing for them, um, and I've I've certainly been guilty of it uh, myself. But whether it's whether it's a less than stellar bandmate or a less than stellar instrument, I I really feel that um, it's a it's a choice to enjoy playing. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I uh, you know uh, years ago I was invited to. Well, I was hanging out with Michael Brecker and Kenny Kirkland, mm-hmm. both of them regrettably no longer with us. And, uh, so Kenny Kirkland was a great piano player. Of course, Michael Brecker, wonderful saxophonist. And uh, uh, we're hanging out in Kenny's loft and, uh, hey, let's jam. So my first thought was, well, there's no bass player here. Mm-hmm. That's a drag. Mm-hmm. And uh, Kenny's piano was really beat up. That sounded pretty awful. And the drums were, oh, the pedal. And, uh, so... <laughs> so uh, my whole preoccupation with that, uh, jeez, oh, you know, as we're playing, instead of like, wow, I'm getting to play with Kenny Kirk and Michael Brecker, right. I'm just focusing on there's no bass player, the drum sets are drag. So I'm kind of almost like doggy paddling through this. Like, uh, at any rate, we, we stop, and then Michael Brecker is kind of looking at me, puzzled. <laughs> and he says, It's really fascinating. I said, What? I take a sip from my beer, and he goes, so I've never played with anyone who on one hand can sound so good, but on the other hand sounds so bad. <laughs> and I, I made a face and, and, and he said, I said, I, I, I didn't say it to be hurtful. I'm sorry, but it's just, it's really fascinating. Hmm. So of course, 
you know, that's something you think about if Michael Berger says that to you. And right. so I was thinking about it. I was trying to figure, and I knew that I was very, you know, susceptible. If I had good players, I would sound great. If I had bad players, I became weaker than the weakest link. Mm-hmm. And then I'm at a club in uh, Orlando, Florida, and we went to uh, to hear, you know, hear some jazz. The the, the great drummer Don Lamont was uh, was was leading the house band. Uh, bass player wasn't very good, and and as a consequence, the, as a rhythm section, it, it somehow didn't sound that great. Mm-hmm. Um, Zoot Sims is the guest artist. Mm-hmm. Zoot Sims was a great uh, saxophone player. Uh, 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 Google gang, right. yeah, yeah. Z o o t s i m s. Just yeah. a, a wonderful tenor player. Anyway, uh, Zoot comes onto the bandstand after they've played a few tunes and we're like kind of rolling our eyes. Wow. This doesn't sound very good. I, I wonder if Don was playing drums. Could, any chance to hear Don Lamont play, I would have found thrilling, but at any rate, rhythm section didn't sound very good. Zoot comes, comes on stage. He sounds great. I mean, he sounds exactly like Zoot. Mm-hmm. And that's when it hit me. I said, you have to, you know, you have to be able to sound like you do, and you and you have to raise your baseline, mm-hmm. so so that even when this goes wrong, that goes wrong, and, and nobody cares, you know, that your car broke down or you had a fight or or whatever, right? You know, right. When you're playing, so that's one thing I work on with my students. I say I I I want the baseline to be. You know, I don't want your fallback to be the way you played when you were 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And, right. and a lot of, even like a lot of adult drummers who would come to study with me, I would say that. I get this look of recognition. I go, yeah, that's exactly what happens when, when things go south on the bandstand. All of a sudden, uh, I'm playing worse than I did when I was in high school. <laughs> Hey, this is this is common, but let's raise that now. And mm-hmm. here's how you can do that. Um, and if nothing else, the best advice I can give to anyone listening, if you're still listening, <laughs> uh, you take a deep breath. Hmm. I take a deep breath. I focus on breathing. I inhale. I'll exhale, um, which is part of acceptance, hmm. part of forgiveness. And you're like, okay, fine. Right. Um, I once I once crapped out John Williams, the great film composer, is directly in front of me <laughs> conducting something. And my headphones went out. And I had all of a sudden no click and and, and Steven Spielberg's there and John Williams stops. He goes, uh, well let's uh, let's do it without the drums. Uh. So to myself I I laughed. It was a big Buddha belly laugh mm-hmm. to myself. I said, okay, can't get any worse than it just got. So now <laughs> let's go. Right, right. And, and, uh, and, and then I moved on, and then the rest of the session was fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, you know, I wasn't like beating myself in the head, you dummy. Right. For, for the rest of the day, you just 
you know, stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. I, I like the words acceptance and forgiveness uh, because it, it, it seems like we've touched on a, on a lot of concepts here that apply to, you know, music, but also just everyday life. Um, and and the idea of, you know, if, if, if conditions on a gig are, are less than perfect, then acceptance and forgiveness of those conditions go a long way to not only how you're going to perform – how you're going to sound, but how you're going to feel doing it. Um, you know, I, I've, there's, there's, it's, it's a lot easier to just get joy and pleasure from playing at, you know, if, if you exercise some acceptance and forgiveness about whatever situation is, you know, potentially a hindrance. And you'll get the best out of the other players. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I, I remember plenty of time with steps with, you know, I might come off and go, Wow, sorry guys, I'm just not. As soon as I said that, they're like, "No, man, me too." Um, uh, and then, boom, it all gets better. Right. So, if you're the first to say, "Wow, it's," uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm I'm having a little trouble doing this. Instead of you know being accusatory, right, right. Um, usually, then the the, the community. Uh, gathers around and yeah well yeah i was noticing too and um hey you know maybe i'm a little too loud is that and the thing can can solve itself very quickly right as opposed to coming off and uh, hey man you know you're doing this and hey uh, you over there you're you're making this sound terrible or whatever right, right. because then, then everyone's just going to throw their their defenses up yeah yeah um, and like you said, even it, it, it creates community. It creates we're in this together. And even if all those problems don't get solved, you know, there's acceptance, there's forgiveness, and there is thus more joy, more community, more you know, fulfillment through the. <laughs> Very good. And and I would I would end end this train of thought with uh, with one more quality. And then something that Kenny Werner expressed, and it's a it's a beautiful sentiment, and I think a, a, a beautiful goal in making music, and that is the exchange of intimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course that trust, acceptance, freaking all those things. But uh, that's it's 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 interesting. I, I wrote an article for Modern Drummer, and they didn't publish it. And it tried to address this, um, how a lot of these all-star bands that I was starting to hear at festivals, and everyone's wearing in-ears, um, no one's playing truly acoustically. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's no sense of the actual balance of the instruments on stage. And and there was no exchange of intimacy. Everybody was in their own little condom. Right. Uh, <laughs> A musical condom or something. Right. Yeah, but, you know. And when I see plexiglass up on the bandstand, I know. Okay, we got problems. Right. Here. It's right. just not. It's just not the way music should be made. I don't think. Yeah, and you know, ears are so prevalent uh, these days, and I'm I'm using them on a lot of gigs. And uh, you know, we've talked. My my partner Matt uh, has talked on the podcast before about how he's lately he's been feeling disconnected from the drums. You know, from just the acoustic sound of the drums, because of because he's got the ears in. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking lately about ways that, um, you know, sometimes you just have to use the ears. That's what the gig is. But yeah, stay the, the, you know, stay connected to the drums somehow. 
the ear the ears are a problem and i think the one of the uh, one of the more regrettable innovations really uh, of, of recent times no not ears oh, okay uh, beyond ears I, I think the uh, the subwoofer oh. is, is really destroying uh, yep um, the way music is is played and, and anytime i'm sound checking you know, and it's problematic. You please turn the subwoofers off. Yep. I said, well, not down, off. Yep. Just, and then all of a sudden, we're going, oh, yeah, it sounds really good. <laughs> so, you know, these guys that are just so interested in throwing so much bass. Um, and, and I, th you know, if any music industry people are listening, uh, I think it's time that we take back the NAM show. Um, all these all these PA companies. You go into a hotel and there's everyone's throwing so much sub bass audio information yeah. out, and it's all competing, and nobody can talk. Right. Um, and everything you hear just sounds completely ridiculous mm -hmm. and, and, and unrealistic, and it's 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 horrible. Yeah. It, and. Um, I went to this one drum event, and I said, it's really awful sounding. Why don't you talk to the sound guys? Well, uh, it, you know, they're running sound. I said, it's your event. Yeah. And if you, I said, you like the way it sounds, fine, but I'll see you later. I can't stick around. I just couldn't stand it. Right, right. And you talk about taking back the NAMM show. I think, I think you know, there's an extent to which we can take back the gig, too, and... Um, uh, just stop uh, deferring so much and so often to uh, the people running sound because you know how you know how you're supposed to sound. You know how the drums yeah, are supposed I'll, to sound. I'll generally, yeah, I'll try to have that conversation. Uh, you don't always don't always win it, and I, I think it's uh, if you're touring, uh, it's possibly short sighted to not have your own. You right. need somebody out front to right. either produce it or to to mix it. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not an engineer, and I I may not know the room, but I do know that I like I like for the audience to lean forward to listen to my music, not to be blasted back in their seats and right. And uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's not just for everyone's hearing safety, but uh, when it gets that loud, nobody can can hear anything after a while. Right. And, you know, an interaction with a sound guy, if you don't happen to have your own engineer or your own producer there, the conversation with a sound guy can be just like it was with the guy on the plane. It's not, it's not a list of demands. It's like, Hey, I, I see you as a human first. Uh, now let's talk about how, how we want this to sound and how I'm playing and what you can do. And like, it's, it's a, sh a short conversation, but I think so many people aren't, aren't willing or aren't able to really have that kind of a constructive conversation, but it is possible. It's not as hard as it sounds. <laughs> no, I, you know what? I think we've solved a, a number of the world's smaller problems. That's what. That's why we started this podcast, man. Is to just we saw so many problems and we had the answers. We just you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Other other podcasts of note because uh, uh, I like podcasts. Uh, uh, my favorite one is is. Uh, 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 Preet Bahara. Are you are you hip to Preet Bahara? I, I've heard that name, um, but I, mean, I'm, uh, I'm, I can't say uh, I am. Uh, the The name of the podcast is "Stay Tuned with Preet." P R E E T. He was the former uh, uh, Attorney General of right. the Southern District of, of New York. Right, and Trump fired him. 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and he's a brilliant guy. And uh, if you're interested in, in, in anything to do with the legal matters or ethics, mm. uh, it's a it's a very informative and, and entertaining listen. So that's that's the one podcast I recommend. I I salute you for for doing this podcast. Thank you. I think it's really cool. Thank you. And I uh, I'm, I'm actually going to look forward to listening back to this. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Speaking of people who are regrettably no longer with us, I know Ndugu was a, a good friend and oh. close colleague of yours. And you mentioned that you went to uh, his his memorial service recently, and uh, just. Hope you could uh, say a few words about Ndugu and, and what he meant to you. Ndugu was uh, well. I, I, I first got to hear Ndugu's drumming. It was nineteen seventy. I think it was nineteen seventy six, and it was a recording he had made in nineteen seventy five with George Duke, called "I Love the Blues." She heard me cry. Mm-hmm. Um. And I was like, whoa, what's going on in Los Angeles? You know, I just, it was so modern and, and, and different. And, and, you know, so he, he, he was uh, kind of pioneering his, his own way of, of playing. Uh, and yet he could step into any kind of situation and do the gig, whether it was a swing track with Frank Sinatra or any, any of the many Michael Jackson tracks right. he played on. Right. Um, uh, to, to call his smile infectious is not to do it service. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but what really impressed me about Ndugu, number one, all his students, you know, came out of his studio sounding great. Uh, but you know, he was uh, he represented a, a necessary conscience hmm. in our drumming community. He he was old school, came to rudiments, really learning the basics. I've always been a bit more conceptual and and with my technical orientations uh, my requirements were more just having to do with touch mm-hmm. um and i i uh, the fact that we were both teaching this way at usc i think provided for a nice balance um and uh he just left us way too soon and uh, it's, it's it's been devastating mm. to, to the school uh but he he left a very strong mark and and, and a standard, and and uh, his teaching studio has now been named for him. Oh, good! Uh, so everyone will pass through the portal mm-hmm. of uh, the Indugu Chancellor, uh, a drum studio. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, I think that was appropriate. And that was good. Right. Um, I did want to mention uh, the the new album, On Call, this double album. Peter Erskine and the Doctor of Band with a wonderfully apocalyptic cover. <laughs> a highway landscape in China with a raging volcano in the distance. We <laughs> had fun with that. Um, and my book, The Drummer's Lifeline, I co-wrote this with Dave Black from Alfred Music. Mm-hmm. Um, and the subtitle was Quick Fixes, Hacks, and Tips of the Trade. And, and these were just things over the years I kept... Uh, writing down that just for one reason or another didn't seem to qualify to be included in, in this book or that. Uh, so it's, it's a fun read and it's, it's a handy size book and um, great for drummers or, or you know, if you're a band director at a school, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Um, so those are the two things I just wanted to mention. Um, it was great to see you and all the, the your drummer friends, of, indeed, much of the Atlanta drumming community. Yeah. I was down at Emory yeah. University. Yeah, yeah. It was great to have you, man. Every and yeah, it was it was a great uh, event. You know, the the drummers kind of got the word out and and uh, and filled the room. That was cool. I was very very impressed. Uh, so what a what a great thing. Yeah. Um, wishing everyone um, uh, a happy spring, and it's it's all uh, try to just make the world a better place. Be kind to one another. Make the best possible music. Amen. It's great to talk to you, Peter. Thanks. You too, Zach. Stay well. Yes. And I really appreciate the, the chance to get up on the soapbox with you. <laughs> Likewise. It's my favorite place, man. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. Right, right. Uh, well, we'll All right. Hope, hope to see you soon in Atlanta or L.A. or elsewhere. Let me know when you come out to the West Coast. Will do. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thanks again to Peter for that talk. I hope you got as much out of it as I did. It was a reminder that the musical life you lead and the overall life you lead probably reflect each other, so act accordingly. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thanks to you for checking us out. Cheers. Cheers.